It's a troubling truth that with the loss, the damage, and the conflict of war, comes the most innovative ideas. Zippers, stainless steel, and of course weaponry all owe some aspect of their being to the conflict that made them necessary and put them in demand. It's 1967 on the Sinai Peninsula, where the Six-Day War is being fought between Arab and Israeli fighters. A unit of airborne commandos are flown into enemy territory to carry out a mission with six jeeps. The commandos and the jeeps are all parachuted behind enemy lines, but the mission is already going wrong. The jeeps have been destroyed by the impact of landing. They're completely undrivable, and the troops are stranded there in hostile enemy territory. But not all is lost. One of the soldiers is a skilled mechanic, and he gets to work. From the wreckage of six broken-down jeeps, he cobbles together two working ones, and the unit goes on with their mission, and they succeed. Welcome to Think Digital Futures, where we bring you stories from the digital age. I'm your host, Nina Kopel. In the past few weeks, I've brought you stories of disruption and talked to people navigating the challenges of existing in a shifting digital space. Today, this continues with manufacturing and the question, can disruption bring innovation? That story I told you before about the jeeps and the troops being stranded on the Sinai Peninsula during the Six-Day War, where one guy used his skills and will to solve the problem, it's a true one. And there are many like it, where war and desperate circumstances have led to creative sparks that light a fire of innovation. But before I tell you just how far that one soldier's creative spark took him when he fixed those jeeps, let me take you back to a pivotal moment in Australia's history, where a creative spark of our own burned through the nation. Back in Victoria, everything is ready for final assembly. Slings lift the body for fitting the front and rear axles, and then the car goes to the main conveyor line. From now on, it moves at two feet each minute, with something new being added all the time. Four years of research and planning, and now they're bearing fruit. It's 1948. And this is the first all-Australian car manufactured in Australia. The Holden 48215 was unveiled by then-Prime Minister Ben Chifley. The 21.6-horsepower, six-cylinder overhead valve motor, complete, is hoisted into position. The line keeps moving as more and more parts are added. This is production technique to equal anything in the world. An eight-and-a-half-million-pound industry in action. Precision tests still continue, checking final wheel alignment. Headlights are adjusted as experts examine non-glare qualities. High-speed rollers keep rear wheels moving to test all instruments, transmission and back axle before road testing. The first car has reached the end of the production line. The job is done and an Australian car is born. It was the beginning of an industry that would go on to shape the nation, providing jobs, growth but also provided an unparalleled boost to the nation's skill base. I was part of a family company in the automotive industry that started up some 40 years ago, and I was in that automotive industry for about uh, 25 years. I worked my way up to the role of CEO for the family company and then became a general manager for a major international automotive manufacturing company. 
This is Associate Professor Antoine Hermans. He's the head of the management discipline group at the University of Technology Sydney Business School. But as you just heard, he also has really fascinating first-hand insight into the way the automotive industry has transformed in recent years. Everybody talks about the borderless world. And as we're moving into a free trade environment, everybody's competing against everybody. And what you're getting now is that in many industries, it is about oversupply versus demand. And so you either would, would try and lower your cost as much to capture market share or you would differentiate it through a new technology and offer a unique value proposition. But, of course, through globalisation, you have to do both. And people were struggling about how do we go about doing that. And unless you've been living under a very large rock for a very long time, you'll know the decision Australian car manufacturers came to. Offshoring. As you know, the Australian automotive industry has been facing challenging conditions for some time. And this is shown in our financial results for 2012, which we are announcing today is a loss of $141 million after tax. This puts our losses over the last five years at approximately $600 million. This was then Ford President Bob Graziano in 2013 at a historic press conference, the one that marked the beginning of the end for car manufacturing in Australia. Our vision for the future for Ford in Australia has three core components. First, transforming our business through the acceleration of new products, enhancing our sales and service experience, and improving our business effectiveness. Second, increasing our vehicle lineup by 30% between now and 2016. And finally, maintaining a significant presence in Australia. Unfortunately, part of this transformation means that we will cease our manufacturing operations in October of 2016. As a result, approximately 1,200 jobs in our Broadmeadows and Geelong manufacturing plants will become redundant when those sites close. We will look to maximize redeployment wherever we can, but realistically, we believe those opportunities will be limited. It wasn't long after Ford made this announcement that both Holden and Toyota made similar ones. After months of speculation and days of denials, General Motors Holden has finally announced the decision its Australian workforce has feared. It's the announcement from Holden that is going to let another 500 workers Toyota go. Toyota has confirmed the inevitable. It will close its Australian manufacturing operations by 2017. The inherent dangers, of course, is this, that we become more and more reliant on one or two of our major trading partners. And as we have just recently seen with the exit of Britain from the EU, and Britain is our second largest economic trading partner, that we are exposed much greater to, to global shocks rather than if we had our own manufacturing base. But what was it that led to the Australian manufacturers failing? Was it just the increasing stress of international competition? high wages in Australia making production costs uncompetitive. Well, according to Antoine, those things had a huge impact. But there was also the fact that Australian manufacturers weren't just falling behind in terms of efficiency and cost, but they were falling behind with the technology as well. Unfortunately, the industry, then particularly the automotive industry, were late adopters. So they were always behind the eighth ball, as you may say, and consequently, the Australian industry was much more of a price taker rather than a price maker. And so 
you know, it was always a reaction to vehicles imported from overseas. And efficiently, of course, that manifested itself in that ultimately the inevitable happened is that Japanese interests started to uh, buy into or bought out uh, Australian manufacturers. Over the years, governments have acknowledged the issues that would come from the automotive industry dying in Australia, which is exactly why they tried to stop it from happening. Over the years, both political parties have introduced policies aimed at supporting the automotive industry, either through tariffs on international manufacturers or subsidies for the Australian ones. This kept car manufacturers and the industries they supported propped up for years, which led me to ask Antoine this question. Do you think that if car companies hadn't have had government support throughout their life, those car companies would have been forced to adopt faster and more intuitively? In a perfect world, you probably would say, yes, that is a, you know, a pretty good hypothesis, you know. But there are all sorts of different forms of government aid and government protection, and the same thing applies to Japanese automotive industry. The Japanese automotive industry was heavily protected by the Japanese government, except it manifested into export subsidies. So to have a pure model of saying, would we have a more efficient industry had government not interfered with the industry, I think that's a fairly naive, naive statement. I think yeah, what you could perhaps accuse the Australian government of, of subsidising and existing industries rather than think about innovation. So I think there is a lot of guilty parties, not just the government in this. I think we were a bit defensive and thinking this will keep on going and the change just wasn't adopted quick quick enough. And of course there was also boundaries put around the challenge by that the ownership of the manufacturers and in, in many instances laid with global players who had other interests rather than the domestic market. The thing to understand about the automotive industry is that its loss goes beyond jobs in factories. Of course, those are significant. But what can often be forgotten is the fallen effect of having a thriving manufacturing industry of our own. Building cars in Australia means that somewhere, at some point, Australians have to sit down and talk about making cars. Not just the process of manufacturing them, but how we can improve that process. Not just the cars themselves, but all the technologies that contribute to them. The electronics, the plastics, the metals, robotics. Things I don't even understand, but other Australians do. And a thriving manufacturing industry was once their incentive for making all those things bigger and better. Or maybe smaller and better. I don't know. I don't really understand cars, but these people do. They really get them. So now what? With the automotive industry in Australia almost gone... Where will those people go and what will they do? And will we still be encouraging the technological advancements we need to be a competitive economy in the digital age? Well, like I said at the beginning of the show, through desperation often comes innovation. The Tom car is the result of an addiction, a fixation. The ideal of function as a form. Remember when I told you about those commandos who were parachuted into the Sinai Peninsula during the Six-Day War? They were sent in with six jeeps and they got destroyed. Well, one guy managed to make two working ones from the wreckage of the others and they successfully completed the mission. But the story doesn't end there. The mechanic goes on to use that experience of constructing those jeeps from the remnants of the other ones to design a completely new vehicle. Every Tomcar frame is hand-welded. 
using over 200 pieces of steel. We use a unique mix of metals, cold-drawn tubular steel, chromoly, as well as armoured steels, which give the frame unbeatable rigidity and strength. The Tomcar is the only commercially available vehicle with a frame made like this, creating one of the toughest safety cells on Earth, protecting the occupants, but also protecting the vehicle itself without the need for extra panels, guards, or protective fenders. The strength is within the Tomcar. Everything with a purpose. A vehicle with no excess, no complicated electronics, nothing but pure functionality. My name is David Brim. I'm CEO and co-founder of Tomcar Australia. About 10 years ago, Tom and his team brought the design of the vehicle that that mechanic from the Sinai Peninsula had developed to Australia. They then spent about six years redesigning it and preparing it for production in Melbourne. And what was the market that you were aiming to hit with these cars? Well, the core market with the Tom car is obviously because of its DNA, its pedigree, its defence. But what's good for the defence force is obviously, you know, very practical and useful for other industries. So our other core industries are agriculture and the mining industry. We're kind of at this point in Australia's manufacturing industry where everyone's talking about the end and everyone's very pessimistic. Are you guys challenging that at all or is this too niche to kind of be comparable? Well, look, I disagree with that statement. I mean, I've been in manufacturing here in Australia now for 10 years and we make some of the world's best products here. Here, politicians and newspapers and doomsayers and naysayers about the manufacturing industry here, which isn't true. I mean, basically, yes, the big car industry has left, and that's probably a good thing because it will encourage more startups like Tomcar to come to Australia. But we manufacture trains, buses, cranes. We manufacture wiring looms. There's thousands of products we manufacture here in Australia and export successfully overseas. You just don't hear about them. I want to I get a lot more into that and this whole idea of this changing industry in Australia. Mm-hmm. But before I do that, I kind of, I'm interested in where you came from. What's your background and where did you get these skills to do what you're doing now? Well, look, I think it's really interesting. A lot of disruptors in, in various industries come from outside the industry. So we came from outside the car industry. We're not traditional automotive manufacturers. You know, my background is in property in the UK. So, yes, I'm entrepreneurial and I've always wanted to own my own business. But we've looked at the car industry in Australia and just saw it was a little bit broken. So that's a very healthy way of looking at an industry. Very similar to Elon Musk, what he did with the electric car industry. He came from outside the industry and, and did it his way. Is that really just what we need at this point, is a lot of innovation and creative thinkers? And it's not necessarily that manufacturing's dead, it's just changing very rapidly. Yeah, look, I think technology is having an effect on most industries. Manufacturing, they're banding around manufacturing 4.0, which is a more advanced, sophisticated way of manufacturing. Look, manufacturing is a science. We've been doing it for hundreds of years. Uh, but technology is allowing it to be done more efficiently and in much lower volumes. And I think that's the key for the future of Australian manufacturing is uh, the future here is uh, low-volume, niche, high-quality, high-value-add products like Tomcar. 
So when you do have a niche product like you are doing, is there potential for your business to grow or is are you at capacity because there's only a very specific market for what you're making? Look, I think in the old days, niche meant small. But I think nowadays with globalization, niches can be huge. So for our niche markets, high quality off-road vehicles, the, the market's actually quite large globally and it's large here in Australia. But when I say niche, I mean not mass-produced, blindly manufacturing millions of widgets and pushing them through the supply chain. We looked at the car industry and saw there was a lot of waste in the system. They manufacture thousands and thousands of cars a day that are pushed through their dealer networks globally and end up sitting forlornly on car forecourts all over the world. There's a lot of waste in that system. With us, with Tomcar, we're like, when you order a car, we'll build you one. So there's less waste. So every car we build has an ultimate owner. So it's more of a, a demand-pull approach than a retail push. With that globalization, though, don't you also have more competition in that global scale? Well, that's what happens when you go niche. Niches have less com- competitors because you're focused on, on smaller markets, relatively smaller markets than the large global players. So our product is handmade, high-quality premium product for our competitors who are large multinationals to manufacture our car will cost them a lot of money and they're all about cost reduction they're not about value add they're about making products cheaply with large uh, profit margins so it's not an attractive uh, business for them to get into yes there will be competitors to us and there always will be but we pride ourselves on our being having a premium product and when you have a premium product you don't compete on price. So we at Tomcar don't compete on price. We're more expensive than a lot of uh, competitors, and rightly so, because we're better. But we compete on uh, safety, we compete on performance, we compete on cost of ownership. We just don't compete on price. How many people is involved in this business model? Uh, in Tomcar, we outsource manufacturing. That's one key thing. So we outsource the manufacturing of the Tomcar to our manufacturing partner, MTM, here in Melbourne. So we are, we can stay lean and we can stay small. So we're focused purely on research and development, product design, and uh, the sales process. So all of the manufacturing, the sourcing is outsourced. So that gives us flexibility to smaller. So there's about a dozen of us here at Tomcar Australia. But obviously that does have flow-on effects for the economy. You know, you're creating jobs further along the line. Do of course. Th- yeah, sure. and do you think that's comparable or can we say, you know, we are losing this mass-scale manufacturing, but what you're doing is the same on a small scale and if there are lots of people doing similar things, is that a replacement or is it just something different? It's a replacement. Look, I mean, you look at the supply chain, there's manufacturers who supply the raw ingredients to manufacturers or assemblers. So currently, you know, the big car companies consume huge amounts of product, or most of that product comes from overseas. With a Tomcar, about 80% is made locally. If there are 400 Tomcar manufacturers in Australia, that's a huge demand and boosts the economy. The problem is manufacturers need to diversify. They need to be smart. They need to look at their infrastructure and, and make offer their services to other companies, like MTM, who manufacture the Tomcar for us offer all their equipment and services and their experience to us and build our cars for us. So 
So they're diversifying, they're keeping all their guys employed. And also all our supply chain, we're keeping all of those suppliers working because we're buying local components from them. I think the government has neglected the small to medium startup manufacturing space to their, for their error. They, they've just been focusing on the large players. And that's a mistake because once you chop down the three large automotive manufacturing trees in the forest, what's left? They haven't nurtured any startup eco environment. And that's where Tom Carr were kind of forging the way, trying to encourage other young startups to actually manufacture product in Australia because it's not that much more expensive to make things here. I have this understanding that it's a lot more expensive. Do you think that's just something the media is getting wrong or is it just because there isn't anyone encouraging people to do business in Australia? Well, look, there's no businessman anywhere in the world that doesn't complain about labour costs and tax, wherever you are. If you have a factory in China, you're going to complain about your labour costs and the tax. Now, the difference is, is what do you get for your labour costs? In Australia, you get highly educated, highly mobile, advanced engineers and mechanics. So what you do what you, to utilize them, you need to build product where that value is included. Is this happening in other industries as well, or are there other products that are moving towards this niche, small-scale manufacturing trend? Well, look, it's interesting. I don't know. I mean, look, America's having what's called, they're calling it reshoring. So a lot of companies are leaving China well, their manufacturing is leaving China and coming back to America. The same thing will happen here. You know, global geopolitical crises, trades, fluctuation in exchange rates, all these things kind of affect the people's mindsets on where they want to make their product. For us, we always wanted to make our product here in Australia because we can control the supply chain and we can control the quality. Yes, labor rates are maybe 20%, 25% more expensive than in China. And the rates in China are going up all, more and more. But you also have to look at the quality issues you may get. You have to be there on the ground, watching the factory, running the factory, making sure the quality is right. When it's here around the corner, those costs dramatically reduce. So it's a balancing act. So you need to understand how many do you want to make of something? And how easy is it to make in your local country? From sheer desperation on the Sinai Peninsula in 1967 came a piece of technology that has at least challenged my perception of what car manufacturing is, even if it didn't challenge yours. But not everyone has this optimistic view that car manufacturing in Australia has this huge potential to transform and adapt. The automotive industry is a... uh an old industry. It's part of the really early 20th century. It's been dying for the last 40 years and it's, well, not very smart because it's full of robot and not many people. This is Peter Newman, Professor of Sustainability at Curtin University. And he kind of seems to think that the automotive industry is dead in Australia. But that with this death comes this great new opportunity, kind of like building new cars out of broken ones, except much more green. All of those skills that were developed by people in Australia to manufacture cars can be easily transferred into the smart cities, smart and sustainable cities agenda, which is the main agenda now. We have to decarbonise our cities and the opportunities are there through all kinds of 
very skillful and smart technologies, including things like modular construction, which is now done in in uh, factories where you produce the houses in pods and put them together. That process is highly designed. It's very smart and it requires all the kind of skills that people in the automotive industry uh, could transfer, perhaps even more skills, a lot more of the digital systems that are needed. There are a whole lot of other things in the energy area relating to lithium-ion batteries and photovoltaics and how they are managed. There are all kinds of special skills will be needed in, in local energy systems. We're going to have lots of little power stations all through our cities that will need people to manage them and build them. So that kind of process is also emerging as a major employer of the future. And what would that mean from a green energy perspective? How much more environmentally friendly would our cities be in that type of setup? Well, we have to retrofit our old buildings. That's a major point that needs to be constantly on the agenda. But any new buildings ought to be modular from here on because they're so much more efficient in carbon and they... They can be multi-storey right through to single residential. If you've never heard of these modular houses, they're prefabricated, so they're pretty quick to build. They can look like anything from a refurbished shipping container to these beautiful modern homes with glass panels from the ground to the ceiling. But the best part about them, according to Professor Newman, is that they're also pretty cool for the environment. Our housing industry in Australia is one of the weakest, uh, most poorly regulated and very carbon intensive and and needs to be transformed. And in in a way, the industry's starting to do it themselves rather than waiting for government to regulate for it. So, yeah, we we need to have all of that happen and we we can get massive reductions in carbon. Getting to 80% less CO2 by 2050 and uh, phasing it out altogether by 2100, which is the goal, Paris. I think it's quite easy to do now. It's just a a question of whether we are competitive enough in that chase and create the jobs that go with it for our Asian region because essentially we need to be the specialists, the experts in this transformation and be advising and helping and, and creating those opportunities right through the emerging cities of Asia. Are we actually looking like we are taking those steps to becoming that power in that way? Oh yes, Perth's boom that uh, has just finished eight years where we were probably the wealthiest city in the world, where did that money go? It mostly went into photovoltaics on, on rooftops. That's where people spent their money. Now this was not regulated, it was not incentivised, it was essentially the market. Uh, it is now a very efficient market. We've got lots of sunshine, we've got tech-savvy people and we have uh, uh, an incentive to go down that track uh, because we believe in uh, the need for responding to climate change. So Perth is one of the leaders, but each of the Australian cities are going down that track. We just had this boom, and uh, it was very illustrative to me that given half a chance, the Australian people will move in this direction. It's happening way before government are uh, requiring it. We don't have to wait for them, and the public is just getting on with it. So you've mentioned how the market's kind of jumped on board with with this green movement. Do you think that the government had made the wrong choice in propping up the automotive industry for so long? 
Oh, yes, no doubt about it. They prop up coal and, and automobiles uh, in an era where, yeah, sure, uh, the politics of it was that there are a lot of people employed in both. Uh, it seems to be the right thing to do, but in reality, they're phasing out. It's, it's uh, no question that governments should have been leading on this. We would have been even further in front and been driving the green economy right through the world. But we're still doing OK. The, the fundamentals are there. But you can't say that it was government leadership that drove it. The end of October this year, Ford will end its manufacturing in Australia and Holden and Toyota will stop at the end of next year. The automotive industry has been disrupted and new, interesting things are already emerging to take its place. Because human intervention, human innovation, just seems to be best when we have no other options. been listening to Think Digital Futures, where we tell stories from the digital age. You can subscribe to our podcast by typing Think Digital Futures into iTunes or your favorite podcast app. This program is a collaboration between UTS and 2SER. I'm Nina Kopel, and this is the last in a small series on disruption. But next week, we'll bring new, exciting things, so stay tuned. <laughs>